When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This special episode of Clear and Vivid, which highlights the experiences of women in science, is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When I looked around and I saw there weren't any women on the faculty at Harvard, I thought, oh, well, of course not, because they must have chosen to have children instead of being professors at Harvard. And I didn't realize the fact that women had to choose was in itself a form of institutional discrimination, if you like, to create an enterprise where half the people can't do the job. What most of us perceived was not being told that we couldn't do it because we're women, but just having people dismiss our ideas or roll their eyes or, or just always having a sense of we're not good enough. I imagine that there have been times that I've been treated differently for being a woman, but I've always been very reluctant to bring that up because I'm worried that their answer will be, no, it's not because you're a woman, it's because you you did this thing wrong or because you, you are a bad scientist. Throughout my career, I've been told by both men and women that I don't look like a scientist, that I'm into fashion, so I won't be taken seriously. I dye my hair blonde, and so people think I'm an idiot. And I don't think that a man would be taken aside and said, you like fashion too much, you can't be a scientist. Every time we talked about unconscious bias or implicit bias to scientists, they would say, oh, but this couldn't possibly apply to us because we're trained to be objective. And so that that's not us. There's talent everywhere. There's amazingly talented women. They're just being actively discouraged from continuing in science. It's not a hard problem. Stop discouraging women from staying in the business. 
Those are some of the voices you'll hear in the next hour or so as we listen to three generations of women in science. Until only recently, shockingly recently, science was almost exclusively a man's world. We'll hear from women scientists about how things used to be, how they've changed, and where they haven't changed, what can be done about it. Here in our studio, I talked with women who played a leading role in prying open doors that were once shut against them. Meanwhile, my producer Graham Chedd and associate producer Sarah Chase went out and visited labs headed by highly accomplished women. They explored these questions of women in science today with those women and with some of their younger colleagues. Yeah, I went to the Broad Institute in Cambridge to sit down with a woman called Pardis Sabeti and several of her younger female colleagues in that lab. You actually had Pardis on the show a few months ago, uh, and I've known her for a long time as one of the most brilliant innovators in genetics. She developed, when she was still young, a new way of analyzing genes to find genes that had evolved recently, human genes that have evolved recently, and in particular against deadly diseases like Ebola and Lassa fever. And she's also a person who's passionate about mentoring her younger colleagues, both male and female. Uh, and I sat down with another real star in her field, uh, Dr. Leslie Vosshall. Uh, she runs a lab here at Rockefeller University uh, here in New York. Uh, and Leslie and her team are doing really fascinating work on why we humans smell, as as Leslie put it, unbelievably delicious to mosquitoes. So I wanted to know a lot more about that. Um, and Leslie, uh, in addition to a lot of the scientific accomplishments that she's had in her life, has also been a leader in promoting the place of women in science. One of the women I talked to was Nancy Hopkins. And when she came into the studio, I, I have to say, I, I really felt I was in the presence of an extraordinary person. She was extremely honest about her own personal evolution in becoming an activist. And once she realized what had to be done, she was methodical and relentless, probably what she was like as a working scientist. Not long ago, she retired from MIT after a stellar career in biology, and that was during a time when biology was undergoing a revolution. Graham, you know a lot about that period. How would you describe Nancy's contribution? <laughs> Relentless and methodical, as you just said, but in two completely different fields, which is what's amazing. She started off during the 60s and 70s when, as you said, biology was undergoing a revolution. We're beginning for the, to the, for the first time to understand how life works at the molecular level, DNA and proteins and genes and all that stuff. And she played a major role in that, in particular studying the molecules and genes involved in cancer. Then, in the middle of her career, she made this giant leap into a whole new field. She wanted to find out how genes work to build our bodies, build our hearts and livers and lungs and bones. And she decided to do this by studying this little fish called a zebrafish. And what makes them so useful is that they're transparent when they're young, so she could make genetic changes in the embryos and see what effect they had on the organs as they were developing. Alan, in your conversation with Nancy, too, we, we learned that she had to make a very important decision about her own genes, um, and that's that early in her career, she decided that she would not have children um, in order to focus on her scientific career. When I looked around and I saw there weren't any women on the faculty at Harvard, I thought, oh, well, of course not, because they must have chosen to have children instead of being professors at Harvard. <laughs> And I didn't realize that women really couldn't essentially be hired in these great universities 
when Re- I was young. Regardless of their regardless. Uh, association with children. Right. I didn't realize it. So I thought it was a woman's choice. And I didn't realize the fact that women had to choose was in itself a form of institutional discrimination, if you like. Yeah. To create an enterprise where half the people can't do the job. That's something that Nancy became aware of only gradually. I wondered if she had any hint of what would be facing her when she first became interested in science over 50 years ago, when women were few and far between. Well, I um, was a person who fell head over heels in love with science. I had liked science in school. You know, I liked math and science, and I was better at those subjects than I was at humanities because I was a very slow reader, so I couldn't be in the humanities, and I had a very bad memory, so <laughs> being, I couldn't being a study slow history. reader was a problem, <laughs> right? But in math and science, you you know, there were very little to read <laughs> and very little to memorize. So, I thought, boy, this is great! I love this. As soon as I heard Nancy say that, I thought of the conversation I'd had with Katie Couric a couple of months ago. Today, Katie has the same passion that I do for science, but when she was in first grade and took a math test... I'll never forget, I got off the bus at the top of our hill, and I ran home crying the whole way. And I got home, this was, I was six, and I said to my mom, I got a two in math! And I think that damn teacher, even though I love Miss Lowry, and she was a lovely teacher and sent me a handkerchief when I got married, she really kind of ruined math for me. Can I blame she it on gave her? You, yeah, well, she gave you a two, and she didn't give you any special She didn't special give me a help. one. I, I don't know. But I do think I was culturally conditioned to think that math wasn't necessarily a subject that girls excelled in. You know, I mean, I was raised in the 60s. I was born in 1957, came of age, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And I think there, were, there was still a lot of sort of stereotype thinking about certain subjects. I also didn't do that well in science, Miss Poland. Um, I, what happened? I think, did she suspend me? Something happened in my, I think I got a D in science. I got kicked <laughs> off the cheerleading squad. Katie is so interested in science now. She really wanted her two daughters to get excited about science too. She even hid from them the fact that she hadn't done well in math. I did. I never told her because honestly, I just really wanted them to be excited about math and science. But instead of looking into science, both her daughters, just as Katie herself did, majored in English. <laughs> and that reminds me of a study that uh, was published just a couple of months ago, looking into the pervasive notion that girls just aren't as good at math as boys. Uh, remember Nancy Hopkins saying she found reading hard and that was the reason she went into science? Well, the study, which involved over 300,000 high schoolers from 64 different countries, found that it's not that girls are worse than boys at math, but unlike Nancy, they're better at reading, just like Katie and her daughters. So the gender gap that still exists between the number of girls going into math-related fields isn't so much because they can't do math, but their superiority over boys in reading and verbal skills draws them to professions that value those skills, just like Katie went into eventually broadcasting. You know, I, I really like that study, but we also, we shouldn't overlook the role of gender stereotypes. You know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian more than anything else in the world. And um, I remember somebody saying, well, you know, to be a vet, that that's going to yeah, require... You have to lift a horse. <laughs> yeah, you have to lift a horse. <laughs> and you have to be good at math and science and all these other things. And that was sort of the underlying statement that was underneath what was being said there was that girls aren't, you know, 
not only do you have to be strong at this, but you also have to be really strong in the sciences. And maybe that's not what little girls are made out of. So they told you that. I, they didn't directly say it. It was, it was, but it was implied in the statement, and I think that's that's that happens quite a bit. But I did show them because that was when I was entering fifth and sixth grade. And guess who had the highest biology scores in fifth and sixth grade? You're looking at it right here. <laughs> but you never went. Never came to that area. I did not. No, I actually then I discovered political science at some point and, and traded one science for another. Um, but again, you know, there's there's still just a huge difference um, in the number of girls and boys going into the sciences. This is something that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So one of the questions you and I asked of the younger women scientists we talked to was, did these gender stereotypes put them off becoming scientists? Mm -hmm. Party Sabeti, just like Nancy Hopkins, was all in from the start. I was the girl in school who loved math, who really, really, really loved math, who solved puzzles during lunchtime, who sat by herself most of the time, um, who was the only girl in my like all boy math class. But somehow in there, that was like my that was like the best time. Like I used to get bullied every day during school, except for like in math class when the door closed and it was me and like 15 boys and they were my best friends. And then the door would open. And so actually, if anything, science was the only place I fit in. Um, and so that was like a super fun part of my childhood. And that stuff matters. I wonder how much your choice between science or not science is determined by talent and how much is determined by mentors and role models. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, Leslie Vossel had a great answer when I asked her if she had any role models uh, that had influenced her decision to become a scientist. Well, I have an anti-role model and a role model. My mother is kind of my anti-role model because um, I'm in my mid-50s, and she's of the generation where women didn't work. They stayed at home. She didn't have her own money. She had to ask uh, my father for $10 to take us to the dentist. Back at the time, dentists were cheaper. And so at an early age, I said, this is not going to be me. I need to have my own money. I need to work. I need to be fiercely independent. And so that was a major driver for everything. I was very confident that I did not want to be a housewife. And the positive example was my uncle, Phil Dunham, who was a scientist at Syracuse University and was one of the most important early mentors because he invited me to come to his summer lab at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole. And so I spent three months only doing science, actual science at the bench, buying reagents, designing experiments, interpreting the results at the age of 16, which is a really unique opportunity that none of my other classmates in New Jersey had. They learned biology in books, and it was really boring. I learned biology by doing it, and it was very exciting. That exposure to science early on seems to me to be a big predictor of a girl's going into the sciences. I remember that conversation I had on last season's Clear and Vivid with Hope Jaren. She wrote that wonderful book that's very appropriately titled for this conversation, Lab Girl. Her father was the physics teacher in a small Midwestern college, and Hope spent almost every day as a young girl helping him set up the lab before the day's classes. Having a, a parent in the sciences, I, I think, or even sometimes more commonly even in medicine, uh, seems to be a major factor in a girl's decision to choose a similar career path. You know, it's the idea that if you can see it, you can be it. Um, so here's a clip from Ellen Dalebaldia. Uh, and Ellen works in Leslie Vosshall's lab. And I asked her if she had any doubts about going into a career in science when she was a girl. My mom was a clinical microbiologist in a hospital, so I saw a woman doing science from the very earliest days. And to me, 
it seemed like she knew everything about um, bacteria and hospital infections, and I was so impressed by that and that I wanted to have the same type of career. When I wanted to do the science fair, she supported that wholeheartedly above and beyond. I was doing science fair projects at home and in her in the lab that she was the manager of. That's not really a research lab, so I went to work for Susan Ross at the University of Pennsylvania. Now she's at University of Illinois. Um, and I wrote her an email, and I said, I'm, I'm really excited about what you're doing, studying. It was a virology lab. I have this experience doing the science fair. I'd love to come work in your lab. Um, and I ended up working in her lab for a few years until I went to college, and that was, I think, a really pivotal experience and opportunity that she gave me. Yeah, a parent or other role model, as well as determination and talent, they both seem to be big in a girl going into science. Here's a young woman who was visiting Pardee Sabeti's lab when I was there. She was, she's a researcher in Nigeria where she collaborates with Pardee's on Ebola research. Philomena Aramon. Yeah, I guess right from being like a child... I've had this dream of being like a doctor. So most of the time in the school play, I usually prefer like the part of the doctor. So I've always had this flair for like sciences. You didn't have any second thoughts about how hard it might be as a female? Well, not really, because I think my dad was very supportive. So um, he was a scientist, actually. And most of the times, like, I follow him down to the lab. And, you know, like, he was actually very encouraging. So I actually thought, like, okay, growing up, like, the science world will actually give me, like, that same opportunity. Was anybody actively discouraging? Yeah, I had discouragement from, like, some male folks. Like, they were like, okay, um, this particular aspect is not for women because it's very taxing and um, it's something you have to be like um, on like the job for like a very long time so if you think about family and all that it's going to be like very difficult but I just felt like okay this is doable. And here's another member of the party's lab Ali Stanton who experienced both encouragement and discouragement. Definitely when I was a teenager, I felt a lot of encouragement from within my family, especially from my mom, who's a doctor. And I think sort of all of the discouragement that I felt was mostly coming uh, from like male classmates in school, um, particularly being like the only woman uh, or one of only two or three women in like honors and AP science and math classes, um, I think was very hard. Um, and I think a lot of the time I, I really felt like I was being talked over and people wouldn't, weren't really willing to listen to me and listen to my input. But you persisted. I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> Why? Um, it was it was really the thing that She's I really good. that I it was it was the thing that I wanted to do, um, and I think like you know when when you're excited about a problem, the way that other people react to you isn't really what's at the forefront of your mind. It's it's really the science and your passion, and not the way that other people are treating you. But the prize for persistence among the women I talked to in the Sabeti lab has to go to Molly Campbell. When I started telling my family that I wanted to go into medicine, their kind of unified reaction was, why don't you just marry Rich instead? Like, that's easier. So I um, wasn't expecting that from any of them. But And I, I, I've never seen my male cousins being told to marry Rich. They're told to work hard. Um, so that was fairly frustrating. That's an amazing echo of the experience of a previous generation of women scientists. 
Not long ago, I had a conversation with Lucy Jones, who's a familiar figure in California, and and I I guess now around the country for her communication skills and talking about the risks from earthquakes. We'll be playing that conversation in our next season of Clear and Vivid, but here's what she said about her becoming a scientist. I was at an interesting time coming into the science endeavor in that when I was in high school, it was still before the women's movement. And so I would have things like my math teacher telling me I should choose Harvard over Brown because they were a better class of men to marry at Harvard. Um, <laughs> right. That was my math professor. That was your math professor. <laughs> right, right. Um, or, you know, the guidance counselor who, when I got a perfect score on science aptitude, accused me of cheating and made me retake it in front of her because women don't get that sort of scores. You know, so I, that was my high school experience. And I stayed with it mostly because of my father, who was like, yeah, women don't do science, but you're my daughter. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to be able to do it. He's an aerospace engineer. So all the women we talked to, except, except Katie Couric, made it into science, mostly through sheer determination. But then we wondered about their early experience in college and graduate school. Did they feel they were being treated differently from their male classmates? Right. Here's Molly Campbell again from the Sabeti Lab. I'd actually asked her if she thought it might be hard being a girl getting into science. I didn't feel that way until college, particularly because there was, as I was growing up, there was a lot of attitude like, oh, we've we've fixed this problem of women not going into STEM, which isn't entirely true. But um, I got to college and every time I made a mistake in a science lab or science class, I seemed to almost be like penalized or have that used as evidence that I wasn't good at it in a way that my male peers didn't seem to have. Um, but you definitely feel it was because you were female that you were singled out as being maybe not doing it right? <laughs> yes, I would say so. <laughs> Why, how, what, what evidence do you have for that? I'm not sure that I have evidence beyond that's the way that I felt and that's the way you're treated by frequently it's male professors in STEM still, which is frustrating. This point that Molly didn't have any evidence that she was being put down because she was a woman it was just the way she felt, turned out to be a common theme among the young women Sarah and I talked to. Here's Pardis. It's in graduate school. My colleagues of mine started to get very depressed um, because they had this like general sense that they were worthless and they couldn't figure out why. What most of us perceived was not being told that we couldn't do it because we're a woman, but just having people sort of dismiss our ideas or, you know, not really listen to them or roll their eyes or, or just always having a sense of we're not good enough. But it's the insidious nature of it that is really hard to deal with um, if you're not aware of what's going on. And it's that thing when you ask Molly, like, what evidence do you have? It's because you're a woman. She doesn't. She just, there's something that's just eating at her over and over again. She feels like, hmm, and you can't pinpoint it. And and you don't know, is it you? And am I being extreme or am I not? Yeah, I think sort of like um, other people have alluded to before, it's kind of difficult to know when you feel like you're being treated differently, you Part of you wants to attribute that to the fact that you're a woman, but then part of you is also saying, well, maybe I'm being treated this way because, like, I'm actually not as good. I imagine that there have been times that I've been treated differently for being a woman, but I've always been sort of very reluctant to bring that up because I'm worried that their answer will be, no, it's not because you're a woman, it's because you you did this thing wrong or because you, you are a bad scientist. And that's the same problem Nancy Hopkins had, this this nagging self-doubt that kept her from realizing that it wasn't Nancy that was coming up short. It was the culture. There was this peculiar problem 
of a kind of invisibility that um, you seem to be accepted, you seem to be one of the boys, if you like, and yet um, you weren't. So at first you think it's your own fault. So I thought the answer to this problem is you got to do a better experiment. If you do a Nobel Prize winning experiment, then surely, surely somebody will notice. Um, yeah, we assume things are run in a rational way. We thought of science as a meritocracy, Yeah, that everybody is judged absolutely on the merit of their experimental discoveries. And I learned that that was not the case. And I figured it out. You can't really easily figure it out for yourself because it's always easy to say, well, I'm just not good enough. I've got to do a better experiment. I figured it out by watching how other women were treated so I could be objective about it. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> so if you only relied on your own experience, there would be a tendency. I'm, uh, this is what, how I understand what you're saying. There would be a tendency to think maybe it is me. Maybe I am not up to par of course. But if you watch other women being subjected to that same discrimination, you can be more objective and say, I can see their work is good. What's the matter here? That's what happened. So I began to watch very carefully. Is it me or is it something in the system here? So I began to watch carefully other women, and I'd say, okay, she made that discovery. He made that discovery. We think he walks on water, and she's kind of invisible. <laughs> you know, why is that? Underwater. <laughs> <laughs> She's underwater. So what? Well, how could that be? And I began to look at women outside of MIT who were in other universities, and there weren't very many. So, of course, it took a very long time. Mm. There were so few women. And so I waited to see, is she really good enough? Is she as good as him? And yet he's respected so much and she's not. And finally, after 20 years, <laughs> 15, it took me 15 years to be absolutely certain that all these other women were undervalued. I still didn't know if it was true of me. Wow. Wow. And I, by then, I, 20 years had passed, and I was tired of fighting this battle. And I, I said, that's it. I cannot do this any longer because I, by then I realized what was happening. I knew with certainty that these women were just as good. We were just as good. We had to work so much harder to be recognized as equal. So what was the first step you took? I first, of course, thought about actually suing MIT, um, which, of course, I didn't want to do because I figured that would certainly end my career, but I didn't know what to do. So finally, in desperation, I decided to write to the president of MIT and tell him there's terrible discrimination in his university and he should fix it. <laughs> so I wrote this letter and I showed it to a friend, a man. He said, I hope you're not planning to send that. That's a career stopper right there. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> That'll be the end of you. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll show it to a woman professor who was a colleague. I didn't know her that well, but I thought I, she had, I had so much respect for this woman. She was a brilliant scientist, a brilliant person. I'll ask her if this letter is acceptable and I could send this to the president. So she read this letter and I was watching her read, and I thought, oh, she's going to think very badly of me, because we thought if you complained of discrimination, it meant you weren't good enough. So, But I knew now the truth. I knew that women were undervalued. So I wrote this letter, and she read the letter, and she said, I'd like to sign it, and I think we should go and see the president, because there's a real problem here. And you gathered other women to join you in this effort, right? Yes. Was that difficult to do? Yes. I mean, I had no idea. I thought I was the only person who had figured out this profound 
discovery that uh, women were undervalued. I had thought I was, you know, the only person who knew. And then I discovered she knew. And then we looked at each other and said, well, maybe other people know too. You know, they've figured it out too. So we made a list of the tenured women faculty in science at MIT and discovered there were only 15 of these people and like 195 men, 15 tenured women. So we would go and ask them and see if any of them agreed with us. And if so, maybe they would join our effort. And we realized that if you had a group of women, if many women said there was a problem, then MIT had a problem. Do you think it also gave some security to each of them? Because as a flock, you're not as vulnerable as a single single person. Yes, absolutely. I think... You know, that gave us power, really, and it gave us confidence that what we thought was correct, what none of us had known. We never talked about it. And what what action did it lead to on the part of the university? Well, it was a long uh, story, but we basically asked that we decided not to go to the president, but to go to the dean of the School of Science, a man named Bob Bergenau, who later became the chancellor of Berkeley, actually, and um, present him with our case. And we said, we want to collect the data so we can explain it to you, and then you can fix it. And so he said, we want to have a committee to collect the data to prove to you what's happening. So gathering the other women together was very important. And I think you've said that when when it was said to you that you should have men on the committee as well, you said, what do we need them for? Right. I said, I don't want any men. They don't get it. I, you know, and the dean said, you have to have men. And I said, okay, well, if you're going to have, I have to have men, give me powerful men. I want men who can do something. I don't want some weak, (laughs) give me powerful (laughs) men. So he gave us uh, these um, three men and they were amazing. And he was right that we had to have men because who would believe a bunch of women? It's fascinating that Nancy originally, and understandably, resisted having men on her committee. But it turned out to be crucial in getting her case across to the higher-ups at MIT. For one thing, male allies had been a part of the club for a long time, and they knew how it worked. And for another, they had the power to do something about it. Like the man at the very top, when Nancy wrote a short summary of the committee's report. And so I wrote this short summary. It was published in the MIT faculty newsletter, and that was endorsed by the president of MIT. And he said, I read this report, I found it was true, and we have this problem, and I endorse this report. And he said, he'd always, this famous quote he made, I always thought gender discrimination was part perception, part reality. Now I know reality is the better part of of it. Mm. And that quote put it on the front page of the New York Times and the Boston Globe. And after that, the world changed. (laughs) It really did change. And we were stunned by the reaction that the world, it was a sort of worldwide reaction to this thing. Nancy and her colleagues published a report on the status of women in MIT School of Science in 1999, and changes followed. Among the most important was the recruitment of women to leadership roles. Today, for instance, five of the eight department heads in the School of Engineering are women, And the numbers of tenure and tenure-track women went from just 6% to 19%. In the School of Science, the numbers went from 8% to 19%. Another big change was in family leave policy. Incredibly, before the report, only men took family leave. 
women knew that taking it could damage their chances of tenure. Then there were the three new daycare centers built on campus, including for the first time, daycare for babies. Those things really made a difference, seeing women in the administration, seeing more women, seeing women having children, daycare on campus, all that kind of stuff. And over time, it degraded. So a couple of years ago, women came and said, we need to start the committees. So they started them up again, these, these committees in the schools. So it's an ongoing process. And we learned that um, it's not something you fix it once, just as you can't tell people once and it's fixed, you have to keep changing the world so it looks different so that women can do these jobs. And then we see a lot of women in the job, then we'll think it's normal. You mean people didn't used to think women could have a child and be a professor at MIT? What were they thinking? So numerically, at least, and thanks in no small part to the brave work of Nancy Hopkins and her co-conspirators, things are better. Sarah, you've been checking out the latest statistics on the number of women in science. What, what have you found? Yeah, I've been going through the National Science Foundation report from last year. And the, uh, the percentage of women in the biosciences has increased steadily to where today there are more women than men earning master's degrees. But things aren't so great when we look at the physical sciences. Um, there's been a bit of a percentage increase in engineering and physics, but the numbers are still below a quarter of master's degrees in those fields going to women. And uh, tragically, in computer science, the numbers have actually declined. So that's what's happening now. And you and Graham have been out there talking to the younger generation of women scientists. So how are they reacting to what they see today? One of the questions I asked the women in Pardee Sabeta's lab at the Broad Institute was whether they ever feel, this just wouldn't be happening to me if I were a man. Here's an eye-opening story from Philomena Eramon, who works in a lab in Nigeria studying the Ebola virus. There was a time at the lab we had like um, a challenge, like um, a challenge in maths, and we were trying to like walk through like some like um, solutions. And you know, the males were like, "No, this is supposed to be for the guys," like because they feel majorly they are into like um, the bioinformatics. Like it's supposed to be like a male thing, not the female thing. And well. The females felt so bad. We actually felt bad. And we gave them the opportunity, but they never came up with like any solution. And we had to take up the challenge as a group of women. And eventually we actually came up with like a solution. Did you feel good about that? Yeah, I did. Yeah, just so exciting. And I asked the same question of Ellen Deobaldia in Leslie Vosshall's lab at Rockefeller. I have a lot of stories, <laughs> but this is a good one, I think. I was at a let's say, a conference where I was giving a, a scientific talk and there was a, an award for the best presentation. And I gave up my presentation and many people congratulated me on the talk. And then when they were figuring out who gets the awards, a faculty member came over to me and said, you know, I think you gave the best talk, but you have to understand that this, another, he's a man, another male PI, told me that we can't give you the award because um, you've just been getting a little too much recognition lately, and so we're going to have to spread the wealth a little bit. And I said, you know, he wanted me to make him feel better about it. So when I realized what was going on, I said, you know, this really isn't okay. It's a It's a defined prize for a specific talk performance, 
and if I gave the best talk, I should get the award. But how about you make it a tie? And I just can't imagine that that a man would be asked to take themselves out of the running for an award, which, you know, I need for my CV just as much as anybody else. One of the women I talked to in the Sabeti lab wasn't trained as a scientist, but now a project manager with the lab's West African partners. Here's Megan Paré. You know, one of our collaborators that I've had to work with, you know, only via email over the course of several months, come to visit. And when they arrived, I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Megan. I'm so glad to, uh, to finally get to meet you. And their response was, you're Megan, but you're such a hard worker. I thought you were a man. I, uh, you know, so those are some of the uh, kind of overt experiences. Um, and then there's also, you know, the, the subtler forms of, you know, like if, is mentioned all the time, you know, getting talked over in meetings, getting interrupted, um, that general sense of uh, dread of just being dismissed or not taken seriously. You know, I've had conversations where, um, you know, I've sat down and had a heart-to-heart uh, about a struggle that I was going through, and I've I've been told, like, oh, well, you know, look at how you dress. You're a snappy dresser. If you didn't dress that way, maybe people would take you more seriously. There's this burden that women have that men don't. It's, you know, what we look like, how we dress. Leslie Vosshall, an extraordinarily accomplished scientist, runs a major lab at Rockefeller. And yet... So throughout my career, uh, I've been told by both men and women that I don't look like a scientist, that I'm into fashion, so I won't be taken seriously. I dye my hair blonde, and so people think I'm an idiot. And um, so, of course, I keep doing it. (laughs) And it's happened to me absolutely throughout my career. When I was in high school, when I was in college, there's always someone who, who takes me aside and says, you don't dress like a scientist. People will not take you seriously. And so uh, this explains why I continue to wear whatever I want and dye my hair whatever color I want. And uh, But I think somebody who did take that seriously and did take it to heart, I think it would be, I think it would have like a really uh, direct effect on their confidence as a scientist. And I don't think that a man would be taken aside and said, you like fashion too much, you can't be a scientist. Uh, Alan, when you talked to Paris Sabeti last season about her work helping conquer deadly diseases like Ebola and Lassa fever, afterwards I was in her lab and I chatted with her a little while and she said this amazing thing, that despite her accomplishments, she's been told that she lacks gravitas. Fundamentally, the issue is that for the vast majority of history, uh, the world has been run by men, and they have constructed the world that we live and work in, and they've defined what are the grounds for success, what are the grounds for gaining respect and admiration, and one of them is having gravitas. And you know, this is individual who you know talked to me about the, the need for me to obtain gravitas is somebody who is again means very very well and was very supportive and was trying to help me figure out how to be taken seriously. And and when that word came up, I fought back against it. And I said, look at me. I mean, I'm never going to have gravitas. I could, you know, have, you know, be white, I could be 90 years old, and no, you know, nobody will ever give me, uh, gravitas is something I'll never really attain. I mean, a deep voice is not correlated with uh, a good idea. It's just that we're, we're making these links that don't exist. And I guess one of the things some people can't get over is the range of interests Pardis has. 
As well as being extremely successful in science, she's also the lead singer in a rock band. But a male astrophysicist who's also a rock and roll star doesn't seem to have a gravitas deficiency. I'm thinking of Brian May, one of the founders of Queen. And all too often we see this disparity and we just live with it. Nancy Hopkins touched on this when we talked about her long struggle to understand why women were treated so differently than men in science. It's so interesting to me that discrimination like this can exist. People can know about it. They can talk about it. They can bring it to the attention of the people who can do something about it. And yet, it's still under the radar until something big happens. In your case, these articles. It was extraordinary. And I agree with you. That's a fabulous comment, I think, that how can we all know these things and yet they persist for so long? I think people didn't know really about this kind of discrimination, this undervalue. I didn't know about it. I had to live it for 20 years. What bothers me is now it's many years later, right? So now it's 2019 and we started this 25 years ago. And, and and interestingly, as I've been thinking about this experience of yours, you you came in at a time when feminism was having a really big explosion, and it took you twenty years after that to personalize it, to understand it in terms of your own life and the people around you. Even when something gets popular and understandable by many people, it still doesn't land on us necessarily. No, and this is our problem. So what should we do about this? I'm asking you. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm asking you (laughs) because this is – it's still a problem. I may be wrong, but I believe it comes from – unconscious, what we call unconscious bias. So while I was spending 20 years trying to figure out why are women undervalued for equal work. But meanwhile, psychologists had done experiments, real experiments. You take an article, you Xerox it, you put a man's name on one copy, a woman's name on the other. You send them out for review. People think the man's paper is better than the woman's paper. And both men and women think the man's better. Yes. Now that, that's, what's that? That is because we all have these same unconscious prejudices. And the problem we face is that still, many of my colleagues, I'm afraid, believe that women don't really belong there. So, example, I, I could not believe it. You can't believe it, some of these things, but one of uh, colleagues who, you know, the National Academy of Sciences, our um, sort of academy our, that honors people for mm. good science, and she was inducted, which is often the high point of somebody's career. And was, she goes to the academy reception, induction ceremony, and there's a man there. And he says, you know, the quality of the academy is really falling because they're admitting too many women. We really ought to have two different academies, one for men and one for women. Oh, my God. To follow up on Nancy's point about unconscious bias, we talked with Joe Handelsman. She was in President Obama's Office of Science and Technology Policy and is now at the University of Wisconsin. 
Dr. Handelsman was the lead author of the first study to demonstrate implicit bias in academic science. Ironically, the the reason we did the study was that that was what we were told beforehand. Every time we talked about unconscious bias or implicit bias to scientists, they would say, oh, but this couldn't possibly apply to us because we're trained to be objective, and so that that's not us. And so they would admit, if, if some of them would admit that this might be true of other people, but not of them. And of course, that shows a complete misunderstanding of unconscious versus, you know, conscious cognitive processes. Uh, but that didn't phase them. And so we thought, well, if we have a study that's on scientists and we show the same thing, uh, maybe it won't be as strong an effect, but there probably will be an effect, then maybe they'll be convinced. In fact, they're scientists, so they should be convinced by data. How did it work? What, what, what were the mechanics of the study? We wrote a short resume, just a paragraph, about a student who was about to graduate from undergrad uh, with a science major. And we asked a series of questions. Would uh, the person responding to the survey uh, hire this, this student as a lab manager? Would they mentor them? Several other questions. And we sent it to academic scientists in biology, chemistry, and physics departments at six top universities, uh, three public, three private, geographically distributed across the United States. And the mechanics were really about as simple as they could have been. And that was what we wanted was a single variable study where the only difference was that half of them received the study or the the paragraph about the student with the name Jennifer and half of them received the name John. And that was the only difference. So it was one variable and the only thing that could explain differences in their evaluation of the student was whether they thought the the person um, was a a man or a woman. What kind of reactions did that supposed applicant get Uh, In terms of would they be hired, how much would they be paid, were they serious about their work? Did you you ask questions like that? Yeah. So we found that they, the respondents, would be much more likely to hire John than Jennifer. If they hired him, they would pay him 15% more than if they hired Jennifer. They were more likely to mentor John, which actually was this, the result that surprised me the most and I think has some of the most serious implications. Uh, they seemed to think their time was better invested in John than in Jennifer. And I, I found that to be actually quite devastating because if you think about all the little interactions that faculty have with students over the course of a four-year undergraduate career – uh, the, all the mentoring that they do, the uh, the length of time they spend answering questions after class for a man or a woman, the advice they give to a student about summer internships or where to apply to graduate school. And you imagine that every single one of those little interactions is just a little bit less positive for Jennifer than for John. And you add that up over a four-year career, it's a devastating difference. So here's a big question. How big a difference was there among the women scientists who responded and the male scientists who responded? Absolutely none. The answers were uh, almost identical 
on every score between the male and the female faculty. And that's consistent with all the previous studies on bias that say that when it's unconscious bias, our own gender or ethnicity doesn't influence the amount of bias we apply. Um, it's only our conscious biases that are different between different groups. I asked Joe how scientists reacted to the study. My naive notion was, well, if you give them incontrovertible data, then of course they're going to understand this and agree. And so that's why we wanted to run this simple experiment that had only one variable that couldn't be explained any other way. But boy, they came up with other explanations like, well, maybe those weren't good scientists, so they weren't being unbiased. Or <laughs> maybe the right. names Jennifer and John had biases within them besides gender. And when right. we would tell them that the names had been pre-tested and they were seen to be very average names for men and women— it, it, nothing phased them. The people who didn't want to believe it could come up with more explanations than, uh, than I could have imagined. The question rises in my mind is, have you experienced this problem yourself? You know, for a long time, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't believe I, I was experiencing bias. And I had, on the face of it, a lot of support from the departments that I had been in um, especially as a faculty member, I had a lot of really warm, supportive colleagues who encouraged my career and encouraged, even more importantly, the maverick things that I did, because I didn't take all the traditional routes in science. I developed other interests like this uh, interest in bias. And so I, I felt very well supported. And it took somebody pointing out to me that at faculty meetings, it was a very routine thing for me to say something and there to be a dead silence and then for a man to say it 20 minutes later and everyone to turn and say, wow, that's a great idea. And I didn't pick it up. I just thought, oh, I'm not articulate or my ideas aren't as good. I had explanations every time one of my ideas fell flat. And it took uh, an observer commenting on that. And she said, you know, that happens at just about every faculty meeting. And it was always the same man, apparently, that she noticed was getting credit for my ideas. And that was the moment when I began to realize, oh, all this bias stuff that I've been reading about and talking about, maybe it really has had an impact on me. But when you're very successful, it's harder to argue uh, bias you know, it's harder to say, well, I've been shut out of this or prevented from doing that. But for me, it was much more subtle day-to-day -day interactions that I think ultimately took a toll on my career. But I've been extremely happy and I think successful in my career. So I don't complain about it um, the way I think other women should. Other women have faced much more serious bias. I mean, really egregious behaviors. So I feel very lucky that it hasn't been as as open and as uh, aggressive bias as many of my colleagues have experienced. But yeah, it's been there. No question about it. You had, in your case, another woman who was looking out for you and in a way, feeding you back the evidence that was not so clear to you at the time. She was, a, uh, and 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 a, she was a helpful bystander. Mm -hmm. That that sounds like something that we ought to encourage one another to do. 
I have started doing that, and I think it's a really effective way to handle bias because it's so hard to advocate for yourself. And it sounds like sour grapes when a person says they didn't get something because they're they're a woman or a minority. Whereas if someone else says it for them, it immediately sounds more objective. So therefore, it must be more true. And I think we also can combat it together. And I actually took one very small step in my uh, former department when we started noticing this this deal that women would say something and there'd be this big dead silence and you'd feel kind of like an idiot that your idea just fell so flat. We decided that if we agreed with each other, we were going to immediately jump in and say, I agree with Sally. That's a great idea because there's this mob mentality in any group. And so I, we found that to be extremely effective. And I, I spread that method wherever I go. I tell women to do that. Um, and sometimes men are as eager as women to help that, that out. And if you're listening for it, all of a sudden you begin to hear this, the difference in the way ideas are greeted when they're presented by men or women, and you can really make a difference in how everyone hears them just by verbalizing your own reaction. One of the real surprises for me as we dug into this topic of gender bias is the counterintuitive notion that instead of things getting better as women get more recognition and power, things can actually get worse. Here's Nancy Hopkins. This is the other thing that I think was confusing. I think when women are young, if they're very, very lucky, they find somebody who's a terrific mentor, and so they don't think there's a problem. But as you go into the field and you rise, and you now aren't the mentee, but you should be the equal, that's when the trouble comes. The higher up you go, the more people are challenged and disturbed by your presence. I, I was just dealing with that right now. People just trying to undermine me left and right. You know, I've been described as a faculty as impertinent, and uh, it's almost too much to get into. But fundamentally, um, it's very difficult, and it continues to be difficult. And, and again, I think the more... It, it's interesting because as I've gotten older and further along, it almost seems like it's more obvious. I've been, I was told by, uh, you know, funder, same, same as Megan, like, I thought you were a man and just walked away from me. Um, I've, a lot of, you know, things like that happen all the time. Every time I, you know, pitch to fundraise, um, they either dismiss me out of hand or uh, if they think I did a spectacular job. And if I did a truly spectacular job of pitching a vision that's just unbelievable, they ask me to mentor a daughter, a girlfriend, um, that is like you are amazing. You are exceptional. Uh, can you mentor my? You know, and and I've, I don't mind. Of course, I don't mind doing that. But that is literally the like the the best they could possibly think of. Yeah, even if they think the vision is wonderful and they're paying attention to the content and it's really engaging, the first thing to pop into their minds isn't, "Hey, I as a philanthropist am well positioned to." to realize this vision or to, to support this financially um, in some substantive way, uh, the first thing that pops into their mind is like, hey, I got to link up my undergrad girlfriend with this lady because she's going places that somebody else is surely funding. Whereas if it were a man or, a, you know, a group led by a man, it's like, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to write a check to my buddy. You know, these sort of put-downs are depressingly common, you know, especially when you're a woman in a gathering that's predominantly men. And I speak from experience. 
And it came up when I was talking with the women in Leslie Valshall's lab. Here's Kritika Venkataraman. Absolutely dependent on the situation and the group of men. So I think that is something that has been extremely important for me to be aware of um, and kind of gauge when I go into a room, what sort of response am I getting? I've had situations where the allyship has been absolutely phenomenal. And when I do speak up, people start to listen and really include me in a conversation. I've also had the total opposite effect, where if I speak up and I'm the only woman in the room, I've had like completely the opposite response. And people are like, oh, okay, she's just, you know, pulling that feminist card and being dismissed. Both of those things absolutely have happened. And it's just a question of gauging who's in the room. And yet you persisted, yes. <laughs> I think it, it's it's important to be comfortable making people uncomfortable. Ah, yes. That's, that's So, I mean, there was a meeting where always somebody had to take notes, and I said, you know, it's really a cliche that the woman takes notes. I'm not taking notes. You take notes. I was going into a meeting with probably, the, you know, uh, the people in this room owned as much as half of humanity, right? I, I was going to one of these meetings with like the top people, and I was, um, uh, and and one of one of these people who themselves is personally wealthy was saying, you know, I just want to help you. I just think you're amazing. I think you're doing spectacular things for the world. You know, what can I help you with? And I said, well, if the main thing I really need to do is just fundraise. So we got that we have this vision, and uh, you know, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and I wasn't even asking him for money. I was just saying, you know, this, that's the kind of thing of if you can help me, it's helped me think about how to fundraise. And he was. He basically was like, I know this lady whose name he couldn't even remember somewhere in Pennsylvania who's a very good mentor for women. And I think you should talk to her. Let me remind myself who that person is. And so, again, it's either mentor or be mentored is the best they can do as I'm walking into a meeting that could have transformed my you know, research career. Um, and so that's that's. That's and, and, and the sad thing is these people are the ones that mean well, and that's the best they can come up with um, is, is I have some lady whose name I can't remember who likes women and who might be able to mentor you. Um, great. Maybe the starkest area where women are still vastly underrepresented is in trying to get startup companies funded by venture capitalists. Even while she was turning around the culture at MIT, Nancy Hopkins could see this beginning to happen. We went, did all this work in the university. Things got better. Women became presidents of universities, heads of departments. Never, things never happened. Women could take fam, all this stuff. Meanwhile, on a, in my field, biology, around us grew up the field of biotechnology, which did not exist when I was young. Biology had no applications. Over time, of course, it became um, a source of uh, discoveries that led to all these drugs being developed. And so the industry called biotechnology started 40 years ago. So just so I can understand, biotechnology means manipulating molecules and or genes or what? Yes, using basic understanding of biology to create drugs to, to treat people, to make biomedical discoveries for mm -hmm. making treatments for cancer and drugs and diseases of all kinds. And so um, also there was a shift from major drug companies to these startup companies which come out of universities. So discoveries get made in a university and then um, the faculty, the discovery is patented and then the patent uh, is licensed to a company that starts outside the university, often involving the faculty members who were making these discoveries. So at the time this industry was starting, I uh, at MIT shared an office with a man who was starting such a company. 
And those men had been recruited by businessmen. It wasn't scientists who initially had this idea to go and start these companies. It was businessmen. And they came and they recruited these guys out of Harvard and MIT and various places. And this man said to me, you know, we were good friends. He said, you know, I'd really like to ask you to join, but I can't because businessmen don't work with women. So I said, oh, well, I understand that. Of course, everyone knows that. Don't feel bad about it, you know. So it goes off, starts some company, which is a multi, I'll assume a multi-billion dollar company and so forth. Fine. But time passes, and this becomes a major industry that now surrounds the university. We're surrounded by biotech companies. And many faculty participate in them. But about five, six years ago, a woman from Harvard Business School comes to see me. She says, I just saw a list of 100 people who were supported by venture capital to start companies in Boston. There were 100 names on the list. There was one woman. Mm -hmm. So biology is a field that has half women, PhDs, has for many decades had half, 50% of the students are women. And yet here's an industry that grew up around us that's excluded women for 40 years from the time it began. It's amazing. It's amazing. So you say, how do you fix the problem? So you go. To, so we're working through the American Academy. We've engaged with um, venture capitalists and the deans at, of science and engineering at MIT, of, uh, engineering at MIT, the Sloan School, the Business School, and we learn that venture capitalists five percent women. It's partners in venture capital. And how, how much are they influenced by unconscious bias? Do they actually make an effort to, <laughs> okay. to, to invest in women's businesses? Well, we learned that if a woman is making, from a woman who has done this, may start a company, if you want to make a pitch to a venture capitalist, you have to take your male students with you to the pitch because they can't really hear a woman. Oh, my God. So that's where we, we're talking 2019. We're not talking. <laughs> <laughs> All this against the background of how things have changed. Well, they have changed. They because... have, but they need to change a lot more. <laughs> so I'm saying to myself, well, well why don't you just um, include the women? Here's a list of women. Because you know, yeah. now you have the problem. The women aren't experienced in this activity because they were excluded for exactly. 40 years. And so what I've learned is when you exclude a group of people, as, say, African-Americans were in this country, so from an in, from a, some enterprise for 40 years, you can't just snap your fingers. So how do we fix that? We have to, we have to go fix this problem. We can't just keep talking about it. Another woman who's doing more than just talking about the issue of women being shut out of venture capital is Melinda Gates. I talked with her about the problem on this season's first episode of Clear and Vivid. Today, if you want to create, say, a new application, a new piece of technology, generally you start by creating it and getting funding. You, you get venture capital funding. Well, in the United States, less than 2% of venture capital funding goes to a woman's business. Less than 1% goes to a person of color. So right there, there's already a big barrier gate put down on a woman's face. And, and there are many reasons for that, but we have to break through that. We have to start funding ideas, women's ideas for business, because guess what? They have ideas that sometimes men quite often don't see. Men don't predominantly take care of the children, and yet there could be fabulous caregiving apps that help a woman find a last-minute babysitter. Uh, you know, if she has a child who has dyslexia, go online and find resources for that. Go and find somebody that can help her. But we don't fund those types of businesses because men don't understand that part of the market very well, and they fund what they're used to knowing can be successful. And so they fund other male-led businesses. One of the things that you talk about 
in the book, the importance of male allies to work side by side with them and that kind of thing. I think we need several things. Um, Absolutely, male allies are part of this. The only way we're going to change society is for the enlightened men. I know many of them. Uh, You probably know many yourself. The enlightened men to help women more, to use their voice, to stop another man if he's bullying a woman, Mm -hmm. to stop a man if he's re-explaining her point in a meeting, and to sponsor and lift women up. We know that women, we know that men in companies have a huge network, and at a 70% rate, they get sponsored in a business by another man. Inside the corporation, the women have very few sponsors. So that alone is one thing a man can do right then, is decide, I'm going to sponsor some women for jobs, and not just mentor, sponsor. In the venture capital community, we just have to break the lock, and that means actually moving money, having funds that will fund women-led businesses. So we have mentored women till the cows come home about how to present their ideas, you know, in venture capital space. And they're still not getting funding. So we just finally have to move money. And so we're starting to see funds raise up that expect a really good return, but they over-index for women-led businesses. And when we start doing that and men start seeing that money's left on the table, these businesses are successful, they'll start to move in that direction. You know, having male allies came up with Melinda Gates, and it turned out to be important for Nancy Hopkins, too, at MIT. Yeah, Alan, the uh, the subject came up also in my conversations with Leslie Vosshall and her team at Rockefeller. And I decided to switch the topic a little bit because I wanted to know a little bit more about female mentorship. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised by some of the answers that Leslie and her team gave. So here are Leslie's thoughts first, followed by Kritika Venkantaraman's. So what's ironic is that I was only had the benefit of male mentors. So my uncle, my PhD advisor, Mike Young, my postdoc advisor, Richard Axel, all amazing men. So they were important because they believed in me. They encouraged me. They pushed me. They had high expectations. It was an equal amount of praise and criticism. And they've been enormously important in getting me to where I am. And so my job right now is to is to pay it forward to make sure that everybody who comes into my lab, I encourage them, I push them, I give praise and criticism in, in some sort of an optimal ratio to get the absolute best out of people. I had a similar experience to Leslie. All of my mentors so far in science before Leslie have been male mentors, and they've all been phenomenal. Um, and part of it, I think, is that they have been very open to the idea that they are there as much to train young scientists as they are to be doing research and contributing to science. And so that means the culture is open to asking questions. It's open to you going out and sharing um, the work that you do with other people so that you become better at communicating it. And I think having a mentor who's both open as well as um available to answer questions. That doesn't mean that they're constantly there and like watching everything you do, but it does mean that you can, they've got your back basically. And here's Ellen Deobaldia. I think when I was younger, I was more, it felt more comfortable for me to work for a woman, but now I have a much more mature perspective on this that I have to, you know, there are mostly men at very high levels in science. There's underrepresentation of women. So it's important to be able to work with everybody. And in choosing my mentor in graduate school, 
I would say the most important thing for me was to find somebody that you really like to talk to talk to about science. You're going to be doing that a lot. You have to be able to communicate with them. And I, there were people that I got along well with, very well with personally. But when we tried to talk about science, we just talked past each other and we weren't on the same wavelength. So, you know, in choosing my PhD mentor in Leslie's lab, that was really important on the interview, even for me to know that we could communicate effectively because communication is a huge challenge in any field of work and especially science. How do you achieve good mentoring? You need to figure out um, who you're mentoring, the unique uh, requirements that the person has when they, they come into your door. It's not one size fits all. Not everybody had the same prior expectations. Some women were discouraged from being scientists. Some were encouraged. And so to get everybody into the same place, I need to figure out what kinds of bad experiences do they have? Do they have lacking confidence? I would say in general, women are much less confident than men. And so that's a really actionable thing that I can work on. Uh, women generally are shyer about giving talks, shyer about asking questions. And so I work really hard on getting all of my trainees, the women need more help than the men, and becoming super self-confident in presenting their work. Some of the men also um, need assistance there, but just in general, the way that girls and boys are socialized as they grow up, lack of self-confidence is, is a female malady that, that men have much less of. We see at MIT that uh, this is one of the biggest problems, and faculty talk about it a lot, and that is, you know, the the young woman student comes in and says, I'm very concerned about my grade in this course, and they could, they're doing very well, they're getting a B, and some guy comes in and says, I got this one covered, and he's getting a C. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> yeah, there is that study that shows, studies that show that men tend to be very confident about their ability when, in fact, they don't have that much ability. And it doesn't apply across the board. No. I mean, there are men who are not confident and women who are very confident. But we do see that difference. So many faculty remark on it about the students, and it's unrelated to how well they're doing. You know, one of the major goals we have at the Alda Center for Communicating Science is to boost confidence by improving the communication skills of both women and men. And we're encouraging participants in our workshops to stay in touch with each other after the workshops are over, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, one of the things I love about the workshops that I go to uh, for, for women or for women in science is that we are encouraged to build up our networks afterward, to uh, connect with colleagues. You know, we do things like WhatsApp with each other and share pictures and talk about our experiences. And we find allies, both male and female, who can help us, I think, with our goals and sort of our needs for the future. And uh, even when I talked with the women from Leslie Valsall's lab, they're also finding strength and confidence boosting when they stay in touch with their female colleagues. The importance of female colleagues was obviously critical to Nancy Hopkins when she was beginning her revolution at MIT. Uh, and they were few and far between. I bet she wished she had Facebook and WhatsApp back in those days. It would have made finding those few female colleagues much easier. That's right. And here's Leslie Vosshall. It's a completely generational thing. I was really lucky by the time I enrolled in graduate school. Uh, we were already at 50-50, so half of my amazing classmates in graduate school were women. And I continue to draw upon those relationships. I try to have coffee or lunch with a woman colleague at least once a month. It's really important, a peer colleague, that you can kind of go over the problems that you have professionally, 
um, personally. It was much harder for women in previous generations because they were the only one. And so then I think it was an incredibly isolating thing to be a woman in science in past generations. It is still isolating at my level. So although 50% of our graduate students are female and probably 40% of the postdoctoral fellows are female, the numbers drop really drastically. So my faculty peers, it's between 10 and 20%, depending on how you count it. So you really have to actively work to maintain uh, constant connection uh, to other women scientists. And in you, Ellen? I'm lucky to have a couple friends from graduate school who are postdocs and new faculty members in the New York City area. So we actually get together to practice talks, um, practice for job interviews with each other. We'll read each other's grants and provide feedback. And we call it Girls Club. And we meet sometimes on a Saturday even just to have time to do it. But I think it's really been really helpful. The one topic we haven't explored yet, and it's it's the one, I guess, that's gained the most attention in recent years, is sexual harassment. Nancy Hopkins told us something very interesting about the time she dropped in not long ago at MIT to talk to the person who was in charge of monitoring progress and preventing harassment on the campus. So I went and had lunch with him about a month ago because I was curious what he thought about the fact that it was back full, you know, seemed like not to progress. And he said he wasn't at all surprised. He said, first of all, he said the people who were most resistant to change were the faculty, (laughs) (laughs) the people with the most power. And second of all, he said he assumed if you stopped doing what he did, which was keep it on front burner all the time, it would go right back. Go right back. Now, I asked him, they did a survey of undergraduates at that time, how many undergraduates had been sexually harassed. One in four. One in four. It's, I was shocked. You know, we're, we're both sitting here with our mouth open. I, I was completely shocked. I just, now I think it's down to one in five. <laughs> so there is progress. There's progress. We didn't focus on sexual harassment in my visit with the Sabeti lab, but one of the women there, Megan Paré, had a wonderfully cynical observation I can't resist including. Even in, in recent years, there, there are headlines generated by a certain Nobel Prize winner saying that uh, women don't belong in the laboratory because they, they cause problems for men. Um, which, you know, just the fact that we have someone in such a prestigious um, point emboldened to say these things <laughs> out loud as if they're just common knowledge and cold, hard facts, it, it's, it's outrageous. You mean that somehow that women are distracting? <laughs> yeah, you know, like you can't be in a foxhole with a, with a lady because then we're going to lose the war. I think it's a really tough call about the sexual harassment thing. People say, why didn't they go and do something? They don't go and tell somebody because they'll be worse off if they do, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's why they don't tell, right? Because they'll be blamed or nobody will do anything, and people will forever remember them as the person who complained. So generally, career-wise, they're better off not to say anything. And that's a problem. Um, and often, and I think the other thing, even women have the concern of the unfair, you know, that somebody will be falsely accused, their career will be destroyed. I think, you know, what is the correct punishment for the, for this behavior? And how do you stop it early on without looking like you're uh, making a big deal out of nothing? To me, this is partly a communication problem. 
because the first crossing of the line, which could be excused as an innocent gesture, how do you make clear where the lines are without making it worse for yourself? You know, you look back on your own life and how you dealt with it yourself. Yeah. How did you deal with it? Well, I, I, this is about the Me Too has been fascinating because you can see how the generations have changed this whole issue. I think when we were young, I mean, when I went in the workplace and I saw things happen, I thought, well, if you put men and women in the workplace together, what do they expect is going to happen? I mean, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is biology. This is life. So I just thought it was unavoidable. But then I look back on um, what happened myself, and I had a couple of bad experiences. And I certainly wouldn't have told anybody um, until I found out uh, in one case it affected a student, and then I went immediately and talked about it. But it would never have gone just for myself because of the consequences of, of doing so. So when sexual harassment is happening or on the verge of happening, what does the woman do or say? I asked Joe Handelsman. Um, one of the things that I've found women say most often is that they don't feel comfortable challenging a man um, because they're afraid they're going to offend him. And I think we just have to get past that. And I have found recently that even though I'm of this now mature age uh, called a senior faculty member and all of that, I still have trouble standing up to men. And I have a colleague who... um, likes to kiss me when he comes into my office. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And I'm talking recent history here, and I've been dealing with this issue now for 30 years, and I did not know how to do it. And it made me realize just how entrained and entrenched the behaviors are that women are brought up with to not offend men and not stand up for the behaviors that just are not acceptable and say, that's not acceptable. I finally did find a way, and I was so pleased that it actually got a fine reaction from the man, and he wasn't offended, because hopefully I will remind others of that, that sometimes men are happy to be told how they should behave and how they shouldn't behave. So I think honesty has got to be a bigger part of of all of our interactions. So I have Um, a question. Pardon mm -hmm. me. My question is, where did he want to kiss you on the cheek or the lips? And the other huh. question, the other question <laughs> is, how did you get him to stop? It was on the cheek, so it wasn't deeply offensive, but it was, uh, you know, in that gray area that if I haven't seen a colleague that I'm very fond of for a long time, I will very often hug them. They'll often hug me. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's different. Kisses are a little different, even if they're on the cheek, and it's a little different when it's on a weekly basis. How I got him to stop was I made a joke about uh, it being a very European habit. He happens to be of European origins. And I said, I know it's very charming and very European uh, to greet with kisses, but it just doesn't work in an environment where I'm working so hard to um, hold people to a high standard of respectful behavior. And And he had a positive reaction. Yeah. He said, yep, I know. We're not in Canada or Europe, so I'll stop doing it. 
And I thought that was just wonderful. This question of how to handle unwanted attention from a male colleague came up in the conversation I had last season with the scientist and best-selling author of the book Lab Girl, Hope Jaron. Now, I remember reading or hearing in an interview that you have advised uh, fellow female scientists on what to do if they get a letter or an email from a male colleague yeah. Sometimes somebody in a superior position to them on whom they depend for a recommendation or their their thesis advisor, somebody like that, and they suddenly get an email saying, here's what I'm feeling about you. You're stuck with my feelings. I can't get you out of my mind. Again. Yeah. What do you suggest when somebody gets an email like that? So there's nothing I can say that's a for sure cure, you know, for what's going on. Um, there's there's legal considerations. Document everything. Keep copies of it. Start a diary. Um, it is useful to fire back right away and say, "I don't um, I don't feel this way about you, and I don't. Um, this communication is um, a problem for me at the workplace." Because later on, if you file a more formal complaint, it always comes up. You know. Why didn't you say something? Did he know you didn't like it? You know, did you, was it all fun and games until you got spurned and da-da-da? And so it is useful to be able to document um, the unwantedness of this interaction because yeah, sometimes it does take a while to, to, to for something to happen. Um, it's, you know, I mean, if there was an answer if there was a way to fix it we wouldn't have it right, right? right, right. <laughs> so so it's tricky i mean you know it's easy to to bring these down, things down to the individual level what what did he do what did she say when he did it or whatever but it's important to acknowledge that there are really large scale institutional um, interactions at play. You know, I've personally seen how universities close rank and stand together against uh, somebody who is having a hard time being harassed. You know, I mean, y- you know, you can document everything you want. You can keep you can keep whatever diary you want. But if you're at an institution that is determined to overlook this kind of thing, that's what's going to happen. One valuable approach to the problem of sexual harassment did come up in my talk with Kritika from the Vossal Lab. And this involves providing understanding for the target of the harassment. So the person experiencing the harassment needs better support. When a sexist remark or a racist remark or any kind of derogatory remark is made towards somebody, all of the onus is put on that person to call out whoever made that remark. And I think that's extremely unfair. It's the same thing with harassment reporting. It's always up to the person to report harassment. Um, When you are at a seminar and somebody makes a sexist comment towards you when you're asking a question, if I'm the one to tell that person, actually, this isn't okay to put me down in front of everybody else, Mm -hmm. that's going to have a completely different effect to if a male scientist in power says, actually, don't talk to the student this way. And I think that seldom happens. And I understand very much that colleagues maintain relationships, and this is at every level, but some kind of training or some kind of system where you don't have to call that person out in public, but having a system where people feel 
responsible to call people out regardless of who they are um, and not leaving all of it up to the person who is receiving these unpleasant comments. And here's Ellen. So thinking about the Me Too movement, I think it's just about time that people are called out for behavior that everybody knows is not okay. We shouldn't have to rely on a whisper network to avoid certain bad actors. And I think that tremendous amounts of resources are put in the hands of um, people who lead labs and mentoring people as part of their responsibility and creating a safe environment should be part of what they're evaluated on. Otherwise, you're just flushing money down the toilet as you invest tremendous amounts of time, money, effort, training women in particular, and then having them um, lose their nerve basically because of a cumulative amount of indignities and insults that happen over time. That is a waste of investment and is keeping us from curing diseases. And it makes me furious to think that petty disagreements in a lab or a PI that's a bully can keep someone from advancing down the road to a cure. We should have a much more collaborative scientific enterprise than we currently do. Uh, To that end, I was intrigued by something Leslie said to you, Sarah, about the way speakers and panelists are chosen at scientific meetings. It's quite typical that someone draws up a list of potential speakers for a seminar series. Again, if you're a 10 to 20% female faculty drawing up the list, you'll have 80 to 90% or 100% of the names on the list be male. It's the job of somebody in the room to say, 80% of these names are men. Are there any women in this field? And then all of a sudden names start burbling up, right? So I think that that's, that's an important point where you intervene and say, why haven't we invited any women? Why does this uh, panel at this conference only have men on it? So I think that, that that's an, an easy place where you can intervene. Half the time people are doing it on purpose. Um, um, half the time they're just unaware that they look at the list and say, oh, yeah, you're right, there are no women on the list. And this does seem to be something scientific societies are trying to tackle. Nature magazine just came out with an analysis of what are being called manferences, in which the panels are predominantly men. Ah, yes, the infamous manals. The infamous manals. And there does seem to be some improvement as a result of this effort. Uh, In neuroscience, for instance, the number of female panelists almost doubled between 2011 and 2019. And the effort to dilute manals has had a major boost from the director of the NIH, Francis Collins. He's announced that if invited to speak on any panel that doesn't have a fair gender distribution, and I quote, I will respectfully or not so respectfully decline and not come. I think we've learned a lot from the women who have been on the show today, but the issue is still out there. What do we do about it? I think they summed it up really nicely. So here are some final thoughts. First, from Leslie Vossall. The status of women in science has been improving with every generation. It used to be that women couldn't be scientists. Then they were the only scientists, but they were not able to get permanent positions. Then getting a permanent position, then having half of your classmates be female. It's getting better every generation. And my hope in the future is that my 
my approach and the approach of many other successful mentors to have high expectations and give consistent encouragement will lead to the future where half of the scientists in the world are female and half of the faculty at universities are female. I think it's an entirely achievable goal if you have high expectations and encourage women to stick with it. All we need to do is to keep the 50% number continuing. Why why can't 50% of professors be female? I don't understand it. 50% of the people on earth are female. 50% of the graduate students, 50% of the high school students, 50% of the college students. Why do only 10% of the women in the world who want to be professors be professors? It's ridiculous. You can fix the problem overnight by just putting some effort into the goal of having 50% of all university professors be female, and then we're done. We don't have to worry about the pipeline or the glass ceiling, just do it. There's talent everywhere. There's amazingly talented women. They're just being actively discouraged from continuing in science after they finish their postdoc. It's just something, I don't know why people, it's, it's not a hard problem. Stop discouraging women from staying in the business. And here's party Sabeti. It's tough because you want the world to turn to see the wor- things that, the way you see them, but you also have to get to that position of power. So there's been a lot of times in my career, many times, where some unconscionable things have happened to me and experiences that I've had where I thought, I'm out. Um, but you realize that you have to do it because if you don't do it, if you're just another woman who steps out to fight the system and say it's all corrupt and all wrong and everything, they're winning because you're another person who didn't achieve her dreams and didn't get to a place of power. So ultimately, if you want to see the world change, you have to stay in it. And that's why I'm still in the game. And the last word from the pioneer of this story comes from Nancy Hopkins. Yeah, I asked her about the fact that she often seems to refer to changes that have taken place that are positive. And it sounds like she doesn't want to see people discouraged by the fact that we haven't achieved it all yet. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that up because it's so easy to forget when it isn't perfect how far we've come. The progress is unbelievable. I think what's surprising is it isn't complete yet, but it is spectacular. And here I am sitting at this table and I see Susan Hockfield's name here. The idea that a woman could be president of MIT in my lifetime was not imaginable. Not imaginable. And here I'm seeing Susan and Susan Hockfield became the president of MIT. And next week, she's stepped down. Now, of course, we've had the next president, but next week they're dedicating this beautiful space at MIT. It'll be called Hockfield Court. And I saw this message came across by email from the president provost, and I cried. Mm. I thought, wow, in my lifetime. I hope everyone listening has been as moved as we've been by the voices we've heard in this episode, and that we'll all keep at it until we can say with Nancy, wow, in my lifetime. I know we've all learned a lot doing this episode. I wonder if it might be a good idea to sort of summarize what we've picked up from this. Well, how about you, Sarah? Yeah, you know, a lot of the things that I learned, um, I, I spoke primarily with, with the women from Leslie Vosshall's lab. Uh, what I learned from Kritika in particular was providing support for the woman who who happens to be the target of something that's sexual harassment and, and making sure that, that if somebody comes forward that their voice is heard. From Hope Jarn, we, we definitely learned that it's important uh, if something happens to you that you document, 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 um, that you keep a record of this and that you you report it right away and that you've got a trail around it. I hope that men listen to this show 
because I was shocked by the very obvious distress that a lot of the young women expressed their experience in the lab. I mean, you, I was really taken aback by how bad it still is, even if it's subtle. And the men should realize that. Yeah, that's where a little empathy comes in handy. Yeah. What is this person going through? I think, I think it's very, as you said, Graham, I think it's very hard to listen to the testimony from these women and not feel some sense of their pain, some understanding of the discomfort that they feel in small ways all day long and sometimes in big ways. My message to men is stop being a jerks. <laughs> Increase your own accountability with one another. You know, if you see behavior towards a woman that you do not approve of, take the guy aside and say so. Tell him to do what's right. Don't don't just watch and, and you know, be a shrinking violet yourself, but, but, you know, call him out. And women also need to learn the, the idea of collaboration as opposed to just being competitive with one another, too. I mean, I, I love Leslie Vossall and her lab because that was what she was taking action to do. She was literally creating an environment, and so was, so was Pardis. They were creating environments for their postdocs and for the women who were coming in where they felt like they were wanted, that they are needed, um, and that they're making a huge difference. One of the things I picked up from Nancy Hopkins, which sounded really important to me, was it wasn't a case of one woman fighting the whole system by herself. She had allies. She had female allies. She had male allies, people who together could form a cohort that could get something done that one person alone couldn't do. The other thing that I think was really a surprise to me, we've mentioned it a couple of times, is that things don't get better. They get worse, if anything, for women you as know, they achieve more senior positions. Yeah, I was thinking of this just a few minutes ago. I was thinking things don't get better once and for all. You have to keep at it. You have to keep at it. You have to keep digging into it all over again. But it's so much like washing yourself every day. You don't wash yourself once and say, well, I got rid of those germs. Now I'm fine. It's a constant struggle because you're dealing with something that's so entrenched, it's not easily removed once and for all. And I think what's been shown by the voices we've heard is that help is really good when it's really helpful. And I think anybody who wants to be helpful has an obligation to find out how they can be helpful, what's really needed. We need to listen, which is really the theme of all our shows. I'd like to personally thank all the women who made this episode possible. Pardis Sabetti, Alexandra Ali Stanton, Molly Kemble, Megan Paré, Philomena Aramon, Leslie Vassall, Hope Jaren, Maria Elena de Obaldia, Kritika Venkataraman, Nancy Hopkins, Joe Handelsman, Katie Couric, and Melinda Gates. And I quickly want to go back and mention a report from the National Academies of Science, and their website address is sites.nationalacademies.org forward slash shstudy. And I'd also recommend visiting leanin.org, which is Sheryl Sandberg's foundation, and they've worked really closely with McKinsey on their research, and they've created a wide range of, of resources and tools for women, including thousands of lean-in circles around the world. And if you're not part of a lean-in circle, that's something that you might want to consider joining. Girlup.org has training programs for younger women. 
another one I really love is the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. And they are an incredible resource because they're working very hard to make sure that if you can see it, you can be it. And their website is cjane.org. And last but certainly not least, there's If Then, which is a campaign to inspire the next generation of female STEM leaders. And I've been to several of their events this year with colleagues from the Alda Center, and I highly recommend them. You can find more details at ifthenshecan.org. This has been eye-opening for me and I think for all three of us here. I hope it has been for you listening. And I hope we all put down our iPhones or walk away from our laptops and do something. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Alan Zweibel and Frank Santopadre, two men who have spent their lives finding the funny in the meaningful and the meaningful in the funny. Uh, a sense of humor is not only jokes, but it's a mindset. So if your mind is in a place where nothing is funny or nothing makes you smile, I, I, what's the point? Going back to when I would teach comedy students or young stand-ups, they thought that it was about the jokes. How do I get the laughs? It's not about the jokes, it's about connecting. Start with that. Before you get on to how am I going to make these people laugh, get them to pay attention. Alan Zweibel and Frank Santopadre. Next time on Clear and Vivid.